Turn with me in your Bibles this morning, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That will be our text for this morning. The nature of our faith and God's desire to work in our hearts through his word in order to strengthen our faith are foundational to understanding this passage this morning. Paul, writing to Timothy, says in chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, stay at Ephesus, remain in Ephesus, in order that you may charge or command certain individuals not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Let's pray and ask God's help. Lord, we, we live in a time in which every idea is embraced, in which every, every different concept or every different proposition regarding what might be true is willingly celebrated, even when those propositions of truth contradict each other. The spirit of our age, Father, seems to be one of pluralism, or relativism, in which we are, in a not-so-subtle way, actually striking down the very concept of truth by insisting that every person may believe what he wants to believe and may do what is right in his own eyes without any claim to any higher truth or any higher authority. And Father, the celebration of this, often baptized under the term of tolerance, is the new virtue of the day and age in which we live. And Lord, as we encounter Paul's instructions to Timothy, it is a virtue which is not shared by your word. You have called your people to a life of faithfulness to scripture. And so we pray, God, as we look at your word this morning, that you would show us how to refuse incorrect teaching, refuse incorrect doctrine, but to do so in a way, Lord, that is loving yet firm. We pray, God, that you'd open our eyes to see that this morning as we look at this passage. We ask that you would do that by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. A medieval systematic theologian by the name of Thomas Aquinas once read the Greek philosopher Aristotle's classic work entitled Ethics, dealing with metaphysics and virtue and how we are to live our lives in light of the ultimate reality which is always around us. He wrote a commentary, Mr. Aquinas did, on this book of Aristotle, and in the prologue he makes the statement, quote, as the philosopher says in the beginning of his metaphysics, it is the business of the wise man to order. It is the business of the wise man to order. And the reason for this ordering is that wisdom is the highest perfection of reason whose characteristic is to know order. Even if the sensory powers know something, it, never, it nevertheless belongs to the intellect or the reason alone to know the order of one thing to another. Now, a twofold order is found in things. One is the ordering of parts to a whole, 
or of a multitude among themselves as parts of a house are mutually ordered to one another. And the second order is that of ordering things to an end. This order is of far greater importance than the first. What Thomas Aquinas is saying there, reflecting on Aristotle's work, is that the wise man's job, the thing that he is going to pursue, the thing that he is going to do, is he's going to order things. He's not using that in the sense of command as in a military general ordering his subordinates, but in in the sense of trying to understand the relationship and the priority or the value of one thing in relation to another thing. And he says this is the wise man's job, to use his intellect and his reason to appreciate and to discern and to correctly identify the order or the value of one thing to another. And he gives two illustrations there in that comment. He says the first way that we do this is we naturally want to order things amongst themselves. And he uses the illustration of a house. Obviously, the roof goes on top and the foundation goes on the bottom. And woe to that man who would confuse those two to build their house on a roof and to overlay the whole thing with a slab of concrete. That will be awfully topsy-turvy, heavy, heavy up top, light on the bottom, and susceptible to being knocked over in high winds. He says there's a proper order in the way that we relate one object to another, but then he says there's another order, a more important order, the relation of things to their ultimate end, that is, their ultimate goal, what their purpose is. Now, the reason I read that comment to you is because Aquinas is reflecting on essentially all of the Proverbs and all of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. He's saying there is a right path to walk, and it requires us to discriminate. Another word which is used in our present day which gets short shrift. What I mean by the word discriminate is that we would look upon things and evaluate their worth or their value in our life from the basis of wisdom, namely from the basis of Scripture. The wise man can't live any other way. If we don't draw distinctions, we will make reckless mistakes. And there is no greater mistake. There is nothing more reckless than permitting within the house of God teaching which does not consist in the proclamation of the word of God. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. If the church is a house, we understand that in any house there is an appropriate order And the appropriate order for the house of God is that the word of God is to be preached without any competitor being given any place to contend. Not that any could. But we as Christians are deceived if we waste our time with the competitors. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus in order that for the purpose of charging certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. When exactly did Paul give this uh, command to Timothy? It's really hard to know the exact historical circumstances. Uh, unlike, uh, most, most likely this command may have come Following his first imprisonment, we're not sure. It may have been sometime in between imprisonments. It could have come before. The book of Acts tells us that the Apostle Paul planted a church in Ephesus and that there were elders or pastors that are appointed to the ministry there. Additionally, in Acts chapter 20, Paul, as he's making his way to celebrate Passover with the church in Jerusalem, sees fit to stop near Ephesus. He meets up with the Ephesian elders and pastors in the city of Miletus, and he tells them, he says, 
I commend you to the word of God's grace. He emphasizes that you need the scriptures. But before he says that, he offers this solemn, sobering warning. He says, I know that from among your own selves, talking to the pastors, from among your own selves will arise men saying twisted, distorted things, seeking to draw the disciples away after themselves and not to lift high the name of Jesus Christ that all may follow after our Lord. How comforting. Guys, I love you. It's been a great ministry. I'm never going to see you again. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Don't know what's going to happen there. I love you. Some of you guys are wolves. Okay, I'll see you. I'm out. Undoubtedly, it would have caused these elders, hearing the admonition and the warning of the Apostle Paul, to begin looking at each other with a very called-for suspicion. What is the foundation of our teaching? What is the foundation of Christianity? What is the authority for the things that we believe and how we are to live our lives? Clearly, at some point, following that admonition, some of these guys thought that their time was short, and so they jumped on their opportunity while they had it, and they began to teach things which were not consistent with the Scriptures. And Paul tells Timothy Go to Ephesus and stay put. He told him at some point as he's headed into Macedonia, and now Timothy is there, and he writes him a letter, and he says, Dear Timothy, just as I told you the first time already, I'm going to tell you it a second time. Stay in Ephesus. Stay there. Now, why would Paul need to encourage Timothy to stay there? There are two reasons which present themselves to my mind. Reason number one, wistfulness. And reason number two, weariness. And both of these can take a toll on the leader's life. Number one, wistfulness. Undoubtedly, uh, Timothy is sitting there in Ephesus. He's got Paul in Macedonia, and depending on the time of year it is and the prevailing winds, he could probably, if he jumped on a ship in Ephesus, he could probably shoot across the Aegean Sea and reconnect with the Apostle Paul there in Macedonia. And again, as I said, depending on the prevailing winds, he could make that journey anywhere from three days to a week. Timothy back with Paul and all the boys. The boys back together again. There with his buddies where we all agree on what the biblical truth is, where we all love Jesus Christ, where we're all sold out and passionate for lifting high his name. Or he could go east rather than west. He could go east where his mom and his grandmother are. You recall from the book of Acts in chapter 14, Paul is most likely from the community of Lystra. If he puts on his walking shoes and starts walking in a three to seven day journey, again, depending on the time of year that it is, he can be in Lystra. He can have his mom's homemade pumpkin pie. He can be there to celebrate Thanksgiving. He can have his mom, his grandmother, in fact, who used to read Bible stories to him as a little boy and tuck him into bed at night. He can be there with his family. So he can go east and see his family, or he can go west and he can see his boys. There's a certain lull because staying here at Ephesus Well, there's a chore that has to be done. And that chore is not an easy one. 
And all of the alternatives that he could have gone after were nice, easy, comforting alternatives. Which leads me to my second reason for why Paul probably wanted to skedaddle. Weariness. This past week, I was meeting with uh, my brothers uh, at Sunny Bray, my fellow pastors, and Bruce Christensen, the individual who's responsible for pastoral care, brings to us the report of the different pastors who are, even as recently as last Sunday, resigning their different positions in different churches around the province, and he begins to share with us some of the struggles and some of the difficulties that these men are facing in their respective locations. And he shares with me the accounts of uh, one particular individual uh, I won't mention the specifics, but he's in a church that has begun to embrace a contrary doctrine. Uh, Pastor Al actually referenced it this morning in my tenant talk. Uh, in this particular church, a number of individuals had journeyed south to a church in America, which Dale says, yep, it's always those Americans that are teaching the crazy stuff. And she's not too far off base when she makes that observation. At any rate, some people from his church went south and uh, went to a church that taught that you cannot be sure of God's presence in your life unless you have supernatural and amazing things happening all around you, such as gold dust falling from the ceilings and money showing up supernaturally in your bank account. And they begin to emphasize this type of understanding of God's presence, and they bring this, pre- this, this theology back to their church, and they begin to hammer it. And we are told last week this has been going on for nine years. This dear brother has struggled with individuals in his church that are seeking to, to divide his church over this incorrect doctrine. And he resigned, not because of any moral failure on his part, not because he'd done anything wrong, not because he'd been harsh or uncharitable in responding to these individuals, but simply because he was tired of it. So when we consider Timothy, it's easy to see why Paul says to Timothy, you gotta stay. The church must have the pure word of God. And we've got some false teaching and you have to stay in order to put a stop to it. Which leads us to the realization that within the Christian life, there are some things we have to do which are simply a matter of duty. They go against what we would rather for ourselves. They go against the things that we would want to chase after. At the end of the day, Paul makes this statement to Timothy, and it leads us to the inescapable conclusion that whenever we are pondering our own path, we can never do so without consideration for the greater good of the church. We no longer belong to ourselves. We were bought with a price. We belong to him who, for our sakes, was crucified. And his love is firmly placed not only upon us as individuals, but upon us as a family, as a church. In 1 John, it says, if anyone says he loves the Father but does not love his own brother, he has neither known the Father nor seen him. Within our fellowship here, guys, we have to love each other. And we have to take into consideration as we make our decisions about where we would go and how we would live, we have to take into consideration the impact that it makes on each other here at First Baptist. Paul says, you got to stay because you have to charge certain individuals not to teach any different doctrine. 
This word here, charge, the ESV says it's charge. This is a military order. This is a, a command. He is saying in the sense that you're a leader, in the same way that there's a general and an army who would give commands to his subordinates, he says, Timothy, you are a leader there in the church in Ephesus, and you, under the apostolic direction of the apostle Paul, you are to order and to command in the same way that a general would give orders to his army on the field of battle, you are to order these men not to teach any different doctrine. The Greek word there is heterodidaskaleo. It's uh, two words, didasko and heteros. Uh, didasko means to teach. We get our word didache or doctrine from this word. And then heteros meaning of another kind. We get our English word hetero from this particular word. And it's interesting because we don't know exactly what it is that they are teaching, but we know that they are teaching something that is different than the body of doctrine that the apostles have laid down, what is going to eventually be codified as our New Testament. They were teaching some different doctrine. Now, the Greek word heresy is a readily available word, but Paul doesn't use that word, but he could have. The idea here is that there are individuals in Ephesus, in this church, who are teaching something that does not consist with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It is something different. And we would all really like at this moment for Paul to get really specific and tell us exactly what it is. We know from the rest of the New Testament there are various options that we can consider. Gnosticism, that idea that it doesn't really matter what we do in our bodies, that matter is somehow evil and all we really need in order to be saved and go to heaven is an intellectual sort of spiritual understanding of who Jesus is and to understand that Jesus was just sort of a spiritual person, that he wasn't an actual real flesh and blood human being who died on an actual hard wood cross to forgive us of our sins. There's that idea. We could look to the book of Galatians and we could consider the struggle that the Apostle Paul had with the churches in the region of Galatia who were being influenced and persuaded by Judaizers. This is Jewish individuals who come into churches pretending to be Christian but really seeking to draw Christians, Gentile converts to Christ into the Jewish faith saying, Jesus is good, yes, it's nice, let's have a little Jesus in our lives, but really circumcision is better and in fact necessary. And if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. And so in that way, they were corrupting the gospel of Jesus as well. So whether you have Gnosticism, which denies the reality of Christ having come in the flesh, or whether you have Judaizers, which say, yes, the flesh is so important. In fact, you have to be circumcised if you want to go to heaven. We're not sure whether either of these two are what Paul is addressing when he speaks to Timothy here in Ephesus, because he doesn't say. Here's what he does say. He says that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So just stop with the different doctrine. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So as we look at that verse, verse 4, he says, number one, don't teach it. Don't allow it to be taught. It shouldn't be mentioned anymore. It shouldn't be discussed anymore. The teaching, the proclamation of this different doctrine should be silenced. That's exactly what he's saying. Number two, because it's already been taught, it's already been put out there. 
those individuals who have heard it, and indeed even those individuals who are teaching it, their lifestyles must not reflect the influence of this teaching. All theology, all teaching, all scripture, and what we believe influences how we behave. Belief influences behavior, and Paul's statement is, number one, the teaching which provides the belief has to be stopped, number one. Number two, nobody should be living in accordance with his teaching. His exact expression here is to devote themselves to it. That is how they would live their lives, how they would order their day-to-day affairs. And again, we're all wondering, what exactly is it? And yet, the Apostle Paul does not say. We know that these teachers reside within the eldership in Ephesus. We know this because Paul, in Acts chapter 20, warned them that from within that group would come these guys speaking twisted things. We know, based on what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, that the goal of their teaching is not to exalt high the name of Jesus, not to strengthen faith in Christ and in his word and what he says. Rather, the goal is to draw away the disciples after themselves. We know from the book of Timothy that these guys teaching this stuff were in the most respected positions of teaching and instruction within the church. They were, in fact, elders. How do we know this? Four reasons. In verse 7, the statement is made that these individuals presume to be teachers of the law. So they're obviously quoting Old Testament scripture there. So they presume to be teachers of the law. Paul uses this word teacher. Elsewhere in the book of Timothy, in chapter 3 and verse 2, he's talking about people in the office of elder, the office of overseer, and he says that they have to be teachers. And then later on in 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul is discussing the nature of remuneration for pastors, for elders within the church. And he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay, so Paul identifies these individuals as teachers. And within the context of 1 Timothy, we understand that in his mind, and as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these teachers occupy positions of authority within the church. Second reason is that Paul mentions excommunicating specifically two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Later on in the, in the text, he makes that statement that he had to expel these two guys. The apostle Paul himself, as an apostle, had to get involved in removing these two guys from positions of authority and leadership within the church. He had to cast them out, to excommunicate them, to lead the church into doing church discipline. If these guys are low-level you know, no-name guys that are sort of raising their hands and, you know, making weird comments in the back of the Sunday school class, the Apostle Paul would not have had to have gotten involved directly. The fact that the Apostle Paul did get involved directly indicates that these were individuals who had already gained influence, had already developed a following, and were already persuading members of the church towards their own erroneous teaching. Number three, In chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, and we mentioned this two weeks ago, Paul gives unbelievably specific details regarding the qualifications and the characteristics of what it means to be an elder. 
of who is able to be an elder or an overseer. And we see here from this first section, he says, Dear Timothy, charge these persons not to teach stuff. And then as he develops the flow of the letter, he goes in and he spends an entire chapter talking about the characteristics and the qualifications of who could be a pastor. Which lead us to believe that he's trying to give ammo, so to speak, to Timothy to be able to say to the church as a whole, we got some guys here who don't meet the basic qualifications. Not only are they teaching stuff that is not consistent with Paul's teaching, but their lives just don't measure up. Their characteristics don't measure up. Which further underlines the notion that belief always drives behavior. They were believing the wrong things. And even though we don't know exactly what it was that they were believing, it was being reflected in their lifestyle. And number four, Paul stressed that sinning elders were to be publicly disciplined. In chapter 5 and verses 19 to 22, Paul talks about the fact that when it comes time to do discipline against an elder, he says, don't show any partiality against an elder. In other words, just because he's an elder doesn't mean that he's entitled to some sort of extra special privileges. Number one. Number two, every charge must be established by two or three witnesses, which is the process that's laid out in Matthew chapter 18 by our Savior himself. In other words, they're to be subject to the same sort of process of adjudication that every member in the church is to be subject to. And why would he feel the need to say that unless, hey, Timothy, guess what you're about to be doing? You're about to be doing church discipline on elders within your own church. So even though we don't know exactly what it is that they are teaching, we know that they were standing in the pulpit on Sunday morning. That's a sobering thing for us. Just in terms of considering this, we recognize it is an act not of preference, but of necessity to have a plurality of elders to have multiple men holding the office of pastor together, not in a hierarchical fashion, but as equals, though they may differ in gifts and abilities and in the ability to preach. Nevertheless, they hold the office together as equals for the purpose of holding each other accountable to not straying and not going off the tracks. Paul's statement here is, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, stay at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Here's what we know. We don't know exactly what it is that they're teaching, but we know that they are appealing to really old texts in order to establish the credibility and the authority of what they're teaching. He says, not to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. Myths or muthos, the Greek word muthos is found all throughout the ancient Near Eastern literature. Uh, it's very common for societies to come up with these fanciful, fictitious stories of how the world began and how exactly it came into uh, existence. And in order to justify their claim to knowledge, they would appeal to an oral tradition that had been handed down from father to son to grandson to great-grandson, so forth and so on, going all the way back to the beginning. And so they would put forth these myths, these ideas of how the world actually is, how it actually came into existence. And in order to, to 
prove their claim to this knowledge, they would then go through this long protracted list of genealogies and show how they themselves are the great grandson of the person who came up with the nonsense in the first place. And so Paul's statement is, none of that matters. None of that matters. Clearly, you can be in a long line with a very old tradition and a very ancient history behind you and be just as wrong as the next guy. Being old doesn't mean you're right. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy here. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. And here's really the driving issue for us. This word, speculation, it essentially means one of two ideas. Questioning, confusion, it has within it this idea of confusion, as well as putting forth hypothesis to sort of reconcile tensions, to speculate, to conjecture, to say, well, maybe it's like this. Based in the meaning of this word, we can gather that whatever it was that these false teachers were teaching, the fruit that it was producing within the congregation, within the church at Ephesus, was that they were more confused, more unsure, more uncertain about the meaning of these things and what the right path forward would be, how God would have us to go. And being introduced to more and more uncertainty and more and more theological and doctrinal ambiguity, they obviously need to step in and fill that void somehow. They obviously need to come up with some idea of how we're to live, even though we don't really know the truth of things from the beginning. And so they began to substitute their own ideas. They began to speculate. I was particularly struck by that as I was reading a book, a, new, a relatively new book. It's the first volume of what, plan, of what the author plans to be a three-volume piece called The Making of American Liberal Theology. And the author, the, the author Gary Dorian, he, he basically is tracing the last 400 years, the rise of liberal theology. Now, before you... Uh, start to think you know what I'm getting at. I'm not talking about a political party, okay? I'm not talking about the liberals or the conservatives. There is a unique movement within Christianity known as liberal theology, but I'm not entirely sure how unique it is anymore. I used to be under the impression that it was something that had sprung up in the last 200 to 300 years, but then as I began to dig into the word speculation, it seems to me that this has been one of Satan's tricks from the very beginning, you see, if the church has the truth and the church knows how to live in obedience to the truth, the church is a very dangerous thing to the enemy. And it isn't the people who walk in off the street who say, you guys worship Jesus, I'm here to tell you Satan is better. Of course, when the church hears that, you all scoff and chuckle and say, okay, crazy guy, you sit there in the corner and we're just going to keep on with our own thing. We're not seriously influenced or persuaded or enticed by the notion that rather than pursuing light, we should chase after darkness. Okay, that kind of bluntness is never going to work on God's people. That kind of straightforward direction from Satan, that's just never going to fly. So Satan employs a different trick. Jesus is great. You guys are wonderful. 
You're doing a great job following the Lord. You've got it 99% right. Let me introduce to you this one little thing that you, you need to know in order to be 100% right. The best counterfeit looks as much like the real thing as it possibly can. And this is how Satan has operated. This is clearly how he was operating here at the church in Ephesus. And this is how he has been operating throughout time. You notice that word speculation. Reading this book by Gary Dorian on the making of American liberal theology, he says that there are several characteristics which are always true of liberal theologians. Number one, their religion is not based on external authority. You see, you and I, if we're going to understand what the foundation of our faith is, what it is that we base all of our decision-making off of, the thing that we worship, we always have to say at the end of the day, it's not my own personal conjecture. It's not my own personal reasoning of what I think is right. There is no relativism within the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no pluralism within the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Peter himself who said, there is no other name given under heaven whereby men might be saved. There is only one. And he bases it upon Jesus' teaching and the word of God alone. That's exactly where Peter appeals to for his authority. Whereas within liberal theology, they do not hold to any external authority apart from themselves. Gary Dorian says that the idea of liberal theology is that Christian theology can be both genuinely Christian without being based upon any source material. Since the 18th century, liberal Christian thinkers have argued the idea that Christian theology can be genuinely Christian without being based upon external authority. And since the 18th century, liberal Christian thinkers have argued that religion should be both modern and progressive, meaning that Christianity should be interpreted from the standpoint of modern experience. So we understand Jesus based upon how we perceive him and how we experience him in ourselves. Again, not an external authority, but an internal subjective understanding. Number two, truth is capable of being known only through changing symbols and forms. Horace Bushnell, uh, a Congregationalist minister, Uh, from New England. He uh, lived from 1802 to 1876. He's considered by many to be the father of American liberal theology, argued that all our difficulties and controversies regarding the truths of revelation are caused by a basic failure, this is a direct quote, are caused by a basic failure to face up to what is known about the clothing of truths in signs and analogies. He suggested that, quote, almost universal sin infests the reasonings of mankind concerning moral and spiritual subjects. Therefore, we are not capable of knowing with any certainty what it is that the Bible is saying. Now, there's some verbiage there, so let me unpack it for you. He is saying that we have this book And I didn't read this here in this particular quote, but he's saying that this book has all all kinds of mistakes and problems with it. That's where he starts. But he goes on to say that we can still have spiritual truth even with a flawed book. 
because spiritual truth does not have to be conveyed to us in certainties, but it comes to us in the form of signs and symbols. Those signs and symbols themselves can be abstract and shifting, and yet we can be certain of the truth that those symbols portray to us. Let me ask you a question. On Canada Day, when you look at the Canadian flag flying high, what do you think? Now, most of you will say, oh, I think about Canada. Okay, that's fair enough. What do you think about the country of Canada when you think about Canada? And then begins all manner of different ideas. There begins, one person says, I love the fact that we're the largest landmass in North America. We're bigger than those crazy Americans. Another person may say, I love the fact that we're part of the British Commonwealth. Another person says, I like the fact that our national anthem mentions God keeping our land strong and free. Every person has a different idea. That's the idea of a symbol. It can speak in an abstract way to subjective ideas. But the symbol itself, apart from one very concrete thing, never implies anything else that is concrete. That's the idea of a symbol. And so when he says we can have a knowledge of spiritual truth through subjective symbols and changing forms, well, it begs the question, how do you know that with any certainty? Again, there is no external authority. It is subjective. Number three, theological controversy is about language, not about truth. This is the third thing. I love this. I know it sounds like I'm saying heresy, but that's just because you don't understand the words I'm saying. That's essentially what they're saying. Bushnell debated various doctrinal points with his adversaries, claiming always that their disagreements were not about actual truth, but about the usage of language. Quote, all my supposed heresies in reference to these great subjects are caused by the arrest of speculation and the disallowance of those constructive judgments or a priori arguments by which terms that are only analogies and mysteries that are most significant when taken only as symbols are made to affirm something wiser and more exact than what they express. Anybody else here lost by that? That's the point. If we can't state bluntly in a very straightforward way in terms that are easy to understand what we believe and not be called a heretic, then let's say it in a convoluted way with a run-on sentence. Where people have to step back and try to diagram. Wait, what was the subject? What was the verb again? What's he saying? Theological controversy is always about truth. And one of the principles of truth is that it is clear and easy to be understood. Number four, historical accuracies of biblical facts and events are not crucial so long as we meet Jesus in the pages of scripture. These books which talk about Jesus don't have to be accurate. They don't have to be historical. They don't have to be factual. They talk about a Jesus, and we need to meet him. But again, how do we meet him if they're not accurate? Subjectively, we decide what we want to believe about Christ. All of this leads to speculation. I'm not sure what to believe. How about this? How about that? Let's work a little bit of this in there. Let's work a little bit of that in there. Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you previously, charge certain people not to teach 
any different doctrine which leads to speculation. So here's a question. And I know that I'm putting myself directly on the map when I ask you this question. In your year and a half, almost not quite two years with me as your pastor, do you find yourself more sure-footed in your faith? Do you find yourself with a clearer and better understanding of the scriptures and of Jesus Christ and of what he is calling you to do as a person? Do you find yourself growing in your love of God's word and in your love of each other as a result of the preaching that is being done from this pulpit? Or do you find yourself walking away increasingly confused? Do you find yourself walking away increasingly saying, well, he talked for 45, 55, 65, forever, and I'm still not sure what the guy was trying to get at. I hope and pray that you answer that question in a way that allows me to keep my job. (laughs) But I wouldn't presume that to be the case. Your edification means the world to Jesus. You coming to be like Christ means so much to him that he died for you. Don't get me wrong, I think you're great people, but I'm probably not going to die on a cross for you. Not the least of which, because it wouldn't do any good. But the fact is, I don't love you as much as Jesus. And so while I do enjoy the paycheck that I take home from this church on a week-to-week basis, the decision that you are called to be making as a church has nothing to do with whether or not there's food on my table and a roof over my head, but whether or not you, as the people of God, are coming face-to-face with the Word of God on a weekly basis, being edified by its exposition, and being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. When considering your pastor, it is important to disregard all of the normal things that we're called as brothers and sisters in Christ to have great regard for. Because there is no higher priority than the preaching of the word of God. And when it comes to this job, though we may love the man in the pulpit, though we may care a great deal for him, we cannot have anything less than the word of Christ preached to us. It should not result in speculation. It should not result in doubt. It should not result in you going home saying, well, I don't know, I'm not sure, you know. Is this right? Is this wrong? I don't know anymore. I'm confused. Let me try to insert my own spirituality, my own ideas to try and make up for what I'm not getting. That should not be the case here at First Baptist Church. What should be the case? What should be the fruit? Look at what Paul says. Not to devote themselves to these things which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The ESV translates stewardship. There's a footnote there if you have a 2007 edition of the ESV or newer. The footnote will say that an alternative way to translate that particular word is uh, the Greek word is oikomenon, and uh, it can be translated the good order. Uh, it's used in Luke regarding the dishonest manager in which the master of the house calls the dishonest manager and says, give me an account of your stewardship or give me an account of your management over my household. It has to do with this idea that within a house, there is a proper way that the affairs and the business of the house, that the lives of those who call that place home, there is a proper way for things to be happening. There is an ordered way. There is a structured way. In fact, this Greek word oikomenon, we get our modern English word economy from it the idea that within a society there's an exchange of goods and services and there's a structure to the way that those things flow it's the same idea here in god's household there is an exchange there is a transaction there is a a spiritual business unfolding here and there is an order to the way that that business is to unfold it says there is an order from god that is by faith meaning that there is an order an order which is to be established here It says that that order is from God, meaning that you are to be receiving this from God. You are to be drawing closer to God, meaning that God in this order is to be drawing closer to you. And then the the way that this operates is on the basis of faith, you believing. And so the preaching that needs to happen here at First Baptist Church and the preaching which you should be praying for when you pray for me daily, as I know, I know you are, is that when the word of God is exposed, when it is expounded upon, when we come to explain it, the preaching that we need is a clear, discernible order within the word of God. These are the things that it's saying. You know definitively that it is from God and you understand intrinsically that by placing your faith and your hope in it, you yourself are drawing nearer to God and God is coming nearer and closer to you. Not speculation, not confusion, not uncertainty, not, well, he says this, but I I read this passage over here, and it says that, and I'm not sure what to believe anymore. Rather, it should be clear-cut, yes, this is truth. The reason why that must be our response is because that was the prayer of Christ the night before he was crucified. In John chapter 17, Coming to the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus, praying to the Father, says, I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and they have come to know in truth that I came from you. He goes on to say, sanctify them in truth. Your word is true. This idea was so prevalent on his mind that the next day as he stands before Pontius Pilate, Pilate asks him, what, you're a king? Jesus, you a king, a lowly carpenter from a redneck town, here before me now, beaten and bloodied, you, you're a king? You say that I am a king. It is for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you hear his voice, church? Do you hear Jesus speaking to you through his word? When we come to this book, are we coming for information, academic facts, just to grow smarter? 
are we coming to hear Christ speaking to our souls? Be careful how you answer that question. Jesus is saying to Pilate, I am the truth. And Pilate is asking rhetorically, what's truth? I'm here to tell you, this is the word of God. And it is Jesus speaking to you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for speaking to us through your son. In your word, by the Holy Spirit, to strengthen our faith in you and to grow us closer to you. Father, my prayer this morning is for myself. First and foremost, God, I pray that you would help the pastors here at First Baptist Church to lead this church in such a way that we are not constantly bedeviled by speculation and uncertainty and doubt and confusion, but that we would know with clear, firm, crisp understanding exactly those things you have said and spoken in your word. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our faith in you, that you would grow our confidence in you. I pray, God, that you would do that through your word as you have always intended Lord, if there are ways in which I, as a preacher, am failing you, if there are ways, Lord, in which I could be more clear or more specific, if there are ways in which I could be more faithful in getting out of the way of your word and just letting you speak, I pray that you would show that to me, Lord. And Father, for those who are here this morning, I pray, God, that you would show to them that every man in this church, every man, woman, every believer in you has a duty to this church to abide for the sake of ensuring that only the truth is proclaimed. Oh, Father, we pray, God, that you would work among us, that you would convince us of this. We ask these things in Christ's name.